Thank you, Nathan. Well read, mate. So, Jericho. Who likes blue cheese? Yeah. Oh, a lot more of you than I thought. Look at that. Something's wrong. I don't like blue cheese. I really don't. I don't like blue cheese, but I like the story behind its discovery. I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, legend has it that there was a shepherd in 7th century France. And, uh, and this shepherd was eating his lunch uh, of bread and cheese in a cave when he's distracted by an attractive woman walking by. And, well, being French, he, he didn't finish his lunch. Uh, months later, he brings his flock back to the same field. And he goes into the same cave and eats his lunch. But he finds his old lunch there, covered in mould. And this is where the genius idea kicks in. Okay, he decides to eat his old lunch instead. <laughs> and for some reason he thought that was a great idea to share with the world. It's a bit of a crazy idea, but hey, it worked for those of you in the room that now have blue cheese. I love stories where a great achievement comes out of a crazy plan. Uh, let me introduce, introduce this guy to you, uh, Percy Spencer. In 1941... Uh, Percy was working on radar systems for the Navy. He was experimenting with all sorts of different kinds of vacuum tubes. And during one of his tests, he says he, he noticed a warm tingle in his pants. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't French, but it turned, out, it turned out to be a chocolate bar melting in his pocket. So, naturally, what do you do? You take this vacuum tube and you start pointing it at all sorts of random stuff in your lab, right? And that's what he did for days. He was just pointing it at random stuff. And he had some, some corn kernels, for some reason, in his office. So he pointed the vacuum tube at that, and lo and behold, they popped. <coughs> and this is how Percy simultaneously invented the microwave and microwave popcorn. <laughs> it was a crazy idea, but it worked. And today we're looking at the fall of Jericho. And if you're anything like me, you listen to that reading, and you thought to yourself, that's a crazy plan. Walk around the city once for six days. Then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times and, and shout. It's crazy. As a battle strategy, I, I don't think that's going to be deployed in Ukraine anytime soon. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. But it worked. We're going to look in detail at this plan today. I'm going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to take it day by day and try and walk a mile in the, in the Israelites' shoes today. But before we begin, uh, let me pray. Father in heaven, um, we pray that you would uh, help us understand your word this morning, help us to understand your plan here in Jericho, um, your power on display, help us to glorify you by uh, speaking the truth of your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open hearts and open minds, uh, help us learn more about you, so that we'd better walk alongside you this week. Amen. Okay, so keep Joshua chapter 6 open, but we're going to begin by just putting some context around Jericho. So way back in Genesis, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be a people for himself, the nation of Israel. And God promised that Israel would be given the land of Canaan, the promised land. And several hundred years later, the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt, God frees them from that slavery and brings them to the border of the promised land. But because they didn't trust God, they weren't allowed to enter until that entire unfaithful generation had died off. So they spend another 40 years wandering in a wilderness. And we come to the book of Joshua, uh, when that generation, including Moses, 
has gone and Israel is standing at the border of Canaan once again. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, is commissioned uh, to take over from Moses as Israel's leader. Uh, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised. And this sets the scene for the book of Joshua. This is where Israel enters the promised land, enters Canaan. Israel is to be God's people living in God's land under God's rule. But first, they've been commanded in Deuteronomy 20 that they must destroy all the inhabitants of the land. And they've been commanded this for two reasons. One, it's God's judgment against 400 plus years of just unrestrained sin committed by the inhabitants. And two, it ensures that Israel will not be corrupted by the sinful practices of the Canaanites and, and led away to worship false gods. They knew this. This is their expectation walking into Canaan. So right from the start, Israel is entering Canaan on a military campaign. Okay, they've been waiting for this day for decades, even centuries. They've girded their loins, they've sharpened their swords, and here in chapter 6, they come up against the very first city, Jericho. So, day one of this campaign against Jericho. Have a look at verse 8. The Israelites wake early, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth. Until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, go about it once, and then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, for, for Jericho, this would have been quite the sight and sound extravaganza. Right? They're looking at a disciplined army, saying not so much as a harsh word. Meanwhile, trumpets are blasting, flags are flying, the head of the column is the, the gleaming golden Ark of the Covenant, the most holy representation of God's presence. But for an army wound up for battle... I can kind of imagine this is quite a disappointing first day. Stay quiet, march around the city, return to camp. So they come to day two. The Israelites wake early. Again, the sight and sound spectacular marches around the city. Of course, while they're marching, the Israelites have plenty of time to check out the defences. Now, archaeologists have uh, believed they found the ancient site of Jericho. Uh, so we do know something about what those defences looked like. Right next to the Israelites as they marched was a, a four metre high retaining wall. Um, it's about the height of this building. And then on top of that retaining wall is a, a mud brick wall, six metres high and two metres thick. So in total, the wall stands about three storeys above their heads. Then behind that wall, there's a sloped rampart. Uh, leading up to another wall, six metres high and two metres thick. And between these walls is mostly clear space, uh, except for some slums where uh, the poorest lived. And there's evidence of some small houses built out uh, against the outer walls there. So the Israelites are looking at a three-storey climb, then a dash through no man's land, and then another wall to get over. And what was the plan to take the city again? Oh, 
we're going to shout at it. As a great theologian is fond of saying, I wouldn't do it that way, God. I think we need a better plan. We need to be building some catapults or battering rams or something. I can just see Baldy McPush things in the camp, showing them all how to do it. We've got to practice pushing stuff. But to be fair to the Israelites, this is actually one of the few times in the Bible where the Israelites seem to be trusting God's plan and actually obeying him. So, day three. The Israelites get up early again. Joshua leads them once again around the city. And Joshua really is uh, portrayed here as an anchor for Israel's faith. As Moses' assistant, he's witnessed firsthand how God has provided for Israel these past 40 years in the wilderness. And no doubt during that time, uh, Joshua has learned not to question God's plans, just go along with them and trust God. But he also had some very specific assurances concerning Jericho. If you flick back one page to chapter 5, in verse 13, right at the end of the chapter, Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's armies. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a sword uh, drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nope. The best answer in the Bible. I love that. (laughs) Are you for us or for our enemies? He says, Nope. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then in chapter 6, verse 2, he continues, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. And then he proceeds to give Joshua this crazy plan. So the commander of God's army is right there on the field of battle. He's not there to fight for Joshua. He makes that clear. But he's there to fight for God. He's there to do God's will. But he assures Joshua that as long as he obeys this plan that he's given him, as long as he obeys God's plan then he'll find himself on the same side as an army far greater than anything Jericho can imagine. This is an important point because many people will take this passage about Jericho and they'll say, see people, if you have faith, God will knock down any walls that oppose you. But it's not quite right, is it? It's it's more accurate to say that walls that oppose God get knocked down. And if you're marching alongside his army, if you're keeping in step, with God's plans, then, lo and behold, those walls fall down before you too. Joshua understood this, and so Joshua obeyed the plan. And this is what gave, gave him courage as he, as he stared up at those imposing walls. Joshua knew that it wasn't going to be up to him to bring those walls down. Day four. Israel get up early and they march around the city. Now, from the archaeology, we know that Jericho wasn't a very big city, certainly not as we would imagine a city today. It's about 450 metres long and 160 metres wide. To walk around it is roughly one kilometre. It would take maybe 20 minutes at a slow march. So once a day, this army comes up around breakfast time, puts on a sight and sound spectacular, trumpets, banners, golden ark of the covenant is centre stage... It lasts 20 minutes, and then they go back to camp, about two k's away. This isn't exactly a siege, is it? 
Jericho is actually quite free to go about their business if they wanted to. I've been calling this a crazy battle plan, and it is. But maybe it's not a plan for battle. Maybe it's got a different purpose. Day five. Israel wake up early. They march around the city again. Now, we just looked at Joshua talking to the Lord, but the narrative is interrupted by this single, verse in, uh, single line in verse 1. You don't notice it because we have a chapter break there and, and the flow is broken from 5 to 6, but um, right in the middle of the instructions from God, verse 1 tells us that Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. The point of this verse is that it tells us Jericho was frightened. And if you flick back to Joshua chapter 2 for a moment... Uh, Joshua had sent some spies into Jericho and they meet a prostitute called Rahab, one of those poor people that live against the outer wall. And in verse 9, she explains why the spies, uh, she explains to the spies why the city is frightened. Uh, Rahab said to the men, uh, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So Jericho had heard of this righteous God of Israel. They had heard what had happened to those who opposed God on their march through the wilderness. They even knew about the promises God made to give Canaan to his people and the instructions Israel had to cleanse the land. So even Rahab, living in the slums, has heard of the coming judgment of Yahweh. And that's why she helps the spies and pleads that her family be saved in return, which the spies agree to do. Now, Israel is marching around the city. The presence of the righteous God of Israel is right there, on their doorstep. The God of heavens above and earth beneath is right outside their doors. So they shut up their city tight, inside and out, because of the people of Israel. Day six, the Israelites once again get up early, they march around the city, and just like the rest of this past week, God declares his presence as the trumpets blast and the Ark of the Covenant leads his people. Now, the structure of Bible passages... Very, help us, uh, very often help us focus on what the meaning of the, uh, the author wants to convey. And the rest of this passage of Jericho, it alternates between two simultaneous narratives. The fall of Jericho and the saving of Rahab. And the structure goes uh, destruction, saving, destruction, saving. The author is drawing a contrast on purpose, a contrast between the destruction of Jericho and the saving of Rahab. The destruction of those who fear God and hide behind their walls and the saving of poor Rahab, who also fears God, but pleaded for mercy. For six days now, God has declared his presence outside the walls 
a warning of impending judgment and destruction. And for six days, the city remains shut up tight, inside and out. All except that one window. One window remains open with a scarlet cord tied in it, looking out towards the army of Israel with a hope for salvation. If only the rest of Jericho had followed her example. So, day seven. The day has come. No more warnings. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 15 says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner but seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute... And all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Uh, and jump down to verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people uh, heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. The people shout. The walls of Jericho fall. Can you imagine how they felt as they saw those walls tumble? What a thrill to see God's power at work. What a rush to realise God is delivering his promises and your victory is guaranteed. Nobody questions God's plan now. They're all on board, running headlong into the city. Baldy McPush thinks he's losing his mind. (laughs) The archaeology shows that the walls fell in such a way that they actually formed a ramp straight up over the retaining wall. The Israelites were able to literally run straight up into the city. The entire wall surrounding the city fell in this way, except for a small section on the northern side, which is presumably where Rahab lived. It also shows a massive destruction layer. There's a layer of ash three feet thick. Everything in the city was devoted to God either devoted to his judgment and destroyed or devoted to his service through cleansing and sanctification. Friends, in the end, all things in creation will be devoted to God, one way or another. So, a bit like Israel, we've taken the long way round today. But maybe this crazy plan wasn't so crazy after all. It proclaimed God's authority in earth. It warned of his judgment. It demonstrated his power both to destroy and to save. And ultimately, it delivered on his promises. And Israel has taken the first steps to live as God's people in God's land under God's rule. And God has always used plans that seem crazy to the world to deliver his people. Here he uses parades and shouting. With Gideon, he used torches and trumpets. Last week, we saw how he used a shepherd boy and a slingshot. He does this to make it absolutely clear that it is his power that saves, not the cunning of a military leader, nor the strength of an army. It's God's work from beginning to end. His people learn that they can actually trust in God to deliver them, and God gets the glory as he deserves. And, of course... 
He still uses a crazy plan to save people today. It's a crazy plan that we call the gospel. The gospel is his plan and promise that God's people will enter enter God's eternal land and live forever under God's rule. But as a means of salvation, it sounds ridiculous until you see its power. Have a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. It'll be on the screen if the screen decides to keep working for us. Um, it says, uh, this is Paul speaking, and Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, cross be, uh, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, or crazy, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the, discerning of the uh, discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the so-called wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the craziness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach nothing more than Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is saying that the gospel seems like a crazy plan to a world that says, we wouldn't do it that way. The world has its own plans. They don't need a saviour. And if they did, in those rare moments when their conscience condemns them of their sin, then they'll look for someone strong and successful, someone who charges a lot for their seminars to tell them that they can save themselves. People feel safe behind their walls. They may hear of God's wrath, but they're shut up tight, inside and out. There are a few, of course, a minority, those who see their sin in the light of God's coming judgment, but they also see God's mercy in the cross of Christ and they fall to their knees and repent And these are the ones who see the power of God and the wisdom of God in the gospel. The gospel is God's plan to save and deliver his people. And like the Israelites at Jericho, we have a part in this plan. And our part in this crazy plan is to obey, to faithfully share the gospel. It's not to break down the walls ourselves, but we're to proclaim God's imminent judgment and mercy. We're to shout The danger for us is that we can get intimidated by those walls of unbelief and try to come up with a better plan. I know for myself, when I've uh, tried to share the gospel with my unbelieving family, um, while I'm talking, I'll see the cynicism creep into their faces. Uh, and, And I really want to offer them something more tangible, something more convincing. Uh, Often I've looked for a better plan. And many well-meaning Christians uh, preach to their friends, but they preach not the cross of Christ, but they'll preach promises of a better life or a warm and fuzzy relationship with God, or we try to own our opponents opponents with apologetic arguments. Um, As a matter of fact, I can give you a simple example that happened in this room just a few minutes ago. I've shared some of the archaeology about Jericho today, and I hope it was encouraging. I hope it's helped to take Jericho out of that part of the mind that you reserve for fairy tales and Marvel movies and kind of move it to something a bit more real, um, a real historical witness 
to the power of God, maybe for the first time. And as believers, when we hear these sorts of facts, we rejoice because we see God's power at work in the world, and rightly so. But I'll bet dollars to donuts that a few people in this room have thought to themselves, oh man, this is wonderful. This stuff's great. I can't believe they've discovered this stuff. If only so-and-so heard about this archaeology stuff, that would convince them to believe. If that's you, then dare I say it, you're a bit like me and you're not sticking to God's plan. We've seen the walls that oppose us and we've gone looking for catapults and battering rams. Your motives are noble. Your heart is missional. That's terrific. And the archaeology would make a great conversation. Go for it. But it's never going to save anyone. Paul said he was sent to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power to save is in the cross of Christ. That's where God has decided his saving power will be found. It's not our arguments or facts or even our friendliness that changes people's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit, the power of God, that opens eyes and changes hearts and witnesses to the truth of the gospel, but only at the cross. The Holy Spirit is God's army on the battlefield, doing God's will. And if, like Israel, we can trust in that plan and and keep in step with that will, then hopefully we too will be in a position to see the walls collapse. And in that moment, we'll rejoice in God's saving power and give him the glory. And those being saved will glorify God as they take the first steps as God's people living in God's land under God's rule. So friends, let's trust our God's crazy plan. Not try and improve it, but be obedient to his will. Because our God is a mighty mighty God and he is the God who saves and all glory will be his and his name will be praised forever. Amen. Amen. Let me pray as we close. Father in heaven, almighty God, Lord of armies, uh, the power to save, we praise you for you are mighty and uh, you have determined a way to save your people that brings the glory to you and the focus back to Jesus where it deserves. Uh, Our ways are not your ways and our plans are not your plans and thank goodness for that because our plans are feeble and frail and often fail. Um, But we can trust in your plans. Help us to trust in your plans more as we uh, have opportunities to share the gospel with others. Let us not try to... um, wrap it in uh, eloquent uh, language or wisdom or facts or arguments, but simply present the cross of Christ as your judgment against sin and the opportunity you hold out for, uh, for all to be saved by the mercy of Jesus. Let, us, uh, let that imbue everything that we uh, think about and work towards and speak about this week. Amen. Friends, it's going to be uh, just 30 seconds of time to reflect. Um, a little bit of thinking music and then uh, the band's going to lead us in the next song.